0: My suspicion is that there's there's an aspect to where I know I have been inculcated in the idea that we're finding the ex, the, the most likely event is the one that corresponds to the truth. You know, there, there's, I mean, Occam's razor, as it plays out in science, is the simplest explanation that accounts for all the data is likely to be true. So there's this philosophical idea that we brought into doing science, but that's it's predicated on the idea that we're actually trying to figure out what or that we're trying to figure out what actually happened and if you now remove the basis for that which the multiverse would do uh, you know you're correct that there's statistically certainly more likely ones than others but if you play if you play with that way of looking at things long enough what prevents you from getting to the place where it's like Well, this is a fun game to figure out what's the most likely, but it has no correspondence to what's actually going on. Why do I keep doing this?
1: What's up, Skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm your host, Jordan. Jared isn't with me today. He's feeling a little under the weather, but I won't be flying completely solo. I've got a very special guest. We are going to be talking about the multiverse, whether or not it exists, why we might think it exists, and how that would impact the conversation of whether God exists. Before I dive into that... I've got a fallacy for you. The fallacy of the day is the no true Scotsman fallacy. It's also known as like the purity test fallacy. Basically, you make a generalization. You paint with that broad brush. Somebody gives you a counterexample and you say, well, that doesn't count. No true X would believe that. So the classic example is Angus, being a Scotsman, says that no Scotsman would put sugar in their porridge. William says, well, I'm a Scotsman and I put sugar in my porridge, to which Angus says, well, no true Scotsman would put sugar in their porridge, so you're not a true Scotsman, so you don't count my generalization stance. You can do this with any kind of uh, group. You could say that no true Christian would support abortion rights or no true liberal would endorse gun control or whatever you want to do. Uh, There can be good reasons, though, to exclude someone from a group just kind of definitionally so if somebody was claiming to be a vegetarian for example but they eat meat all the time then you could rightly question whether or not they are actually a vegetarian since not eating meat is literally the definition of being a vegetarian so you can use that and that's not necessarily fallacious uh but just maybe put those broad brushes away they tend to get people in trouble so with that out of the way We're going to get into our conversation. Before I dive into this, I do want to apologize. I have recently rebuilt my computer and my audio switched from this really cool mic I have here to the potato webcam that I have recording me. So it sounds like I'm yelling at you from across a vast distance. and I apologize for that. But unfortunately, I can't go back in time. Uh, But in some version of the multiverse, I did use the right microphone. So if you happen to be in that branch of the multiverse, then you're going to have a much better listening experience. Anyway, (laughs) the person joining me today is Dr. Jeff Zwierink. Jeff is from the Reasons to Believe uh, group, and he's an astrophysicist. He's a research scholar for Reasons to Believe. He earned a PhD in astrophysics from Iowa State University. His writing focuses on encouraging people to consider the connections between the truth of scripture and scientific evidence, kind of putting those two together. He's the author of Escaping the Beginning and Who's Afraid of the Multiverse, both books I have and have read, and they're great, highly recommended, and also the co-author of the Impact Events student devotional series. So thanks for joining us, and here's the conversation I had with Jeff. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. Really appreciate you taking the time to come
2: chat with this humble engineer.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to our time here, Jordan. I uh, love talking about the multiverse and enjoy interacting with you.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm a bit of a physics nerd, so this is super exciting for me. Uh, today, like I said, we're going to be talking about the multiverse and probably get into uh, you know, what it is, why scientists think it might be a thing, and what, if any, implications it could have on the conversation surrounding God and theology. Um, I picked up your book. I read it over the weekend. I was camping with my daughter, uh, who's afraid of the multiverse, which, um, I, I swear no, he doesn't pay me to pitch <laughs> these books. I just, I just read them because I think it's interesting. Uh, so, uh, but before we, we like get into, um, the meat of the conversation, probably not everybody reads cosmology books in their free time. So, um, could you briefly,
0: Uh, go over, like, what is the multiverse, and why do people think it might be a thing? So the way I describe it typically is, uh, you know, if you're going to talk about a multiverse, which is many things, you got to talk about what the universe is. And there's no arbitrary, uniform, agreed on, set upon definition of that. But uh, the way I like to think about it is that in our universe, There's uh, the speed of light has a constant value. It's a finite and constant value, which means that the further away you are, the longer it takes light to travel to us. We live in a universe that's about 14 billion years old um, and that's expanding. And you put all those three things together. And what that means is that there is a most distant reach where anything has the possibility of transmitting from that location to the Earth. And so I just define that as a universe or it's more generally talked about an observable universe, Hubble volume, lots of terms for it. But it's just the idea that this is the most distant region of space where we can actually interact, interact with it in some way. And now, granted, this is a very large region. It's about uh, you know roughly 50 billion light years in radius. Uh, and it's centered on the Earth because that's where we defined it to be centered. That's not saying the Earth has any special location. But uh, so if that if we can decide or define that as the universe, then the multiverse really is just anything beyond that. And that might seem ludicrous or weird to be talking about that in a scientific context. But there are you know this idea of inflation that's out there. Well, part of how inflation explains some of the observations we see in our universe is that There's a very rapid period of expansion, and that means that the universe is much larger than what we can see. And when you're so, so really, the multiverse is just anything beyond the region of space time that we can see. Now, you get beyond that, and there's different ways to think about what could be beyond. It could be just a whole lot more of the same stuff, it could be entire other realms where the laws of physics look different. You can get quantum mechanical multiverses, you can get mathematical multiverses. So, there's a lot of uh, diversity once you get into, oh, here's a multiverse, but really just the multiverse is anything that is beyond the physical realm that we can see. And you said, you know, obviously the universe
2: is thought to be about our, sorry, our observable universe, our little region of space is thought to be about 14 billion years old, but the size of it is about 50 billion years old. Um, uh, so the, part how the, uh, the part we can observe, right. So how uh, does that work? The fact
0: that it's only been around for 14 billion, but it's bigger than that. Well, that, that, the, what accounts for that fact is that the universe is expanding. And so what happens is, uh, you know, if we were to take something now and say, all right, the, there's some distant location which starts emitting light towards us. Well, it's going to take some time to travel and get to the Earth, that light wave is. In the meantime, space is going to be expanding. And so that's why we see things redshifted, that that expansion of space causes things to be redshifted. So while that thing may travel to Earth and it's going to take some amount of time, the place that emitted it is going to be expanding or moving away from us during that time. So the the most distant thing that we can see is the cosmic microwave background radiation, which was emitted about 400,000 years after, uh, you know, the Big Bang uh, or, or the earliest measurable part of the universe, if you will. Um, that region that emitted that has now, that's what's out at that distance of four, four, 50 billion light years. So while it's traveling, the space between us is getting larger at the same time. Got it, got it. So it's like the fabric, or the, the, it's like the tank of water that it's swimming through is getting progressively bigger. Right, yes. Yeah, I mean, And and the, and the hard part about that is that we can talk about the universe being 14 billion years old. We can talk about seeing something here but the light that we saw was emitted many years ago. And so you got to account for the dynamics in between. Cool. Uh, And in the the book you mentioned, and you kind of alluded to here, different
2: levels of multiverse. So like level one being the least exotic and going up, I think you said level four. Uh, So level one, if I remember correctly, is kind of what you said, where it's the same physics are the same. It's just more universe. Yeah. Basically, like if you just, got on a rocket ship and somehow could go faster than light, you could get to the edge. You just keep going, right? And there'd yeah. just be more.
0: And, and it looked uh, largely like the stuff we see. Statistically speaking, it would be, you know, you'd look up at the night sky, and except for the fact you wouldn't recognize constellations, it would basically just look the same. So, And the uh, little two was more of like the
2: multiversal foam, where you have different regions of different universes would have different physics, and they might look very different than what we experience,
0: is that right? Yeah, and, and I, I want to be careful how we say that because I don't know that they have different physics because when, you know, there, there's this terminology that at some point we'll probably get into discussing today where, you know, there's this theory of everything that we think is out there, which that's the physics that describes everything, but as that may describe everything, but it's in the very high energy state and as things cool, the low energy forms will look different. So when it cools, you get a certain speed of light or a certain strength of the gravitational force, those sorts of things. In these other realms, the low energy physics can look different. But presumably, or the idea is that it would all be described by that theory of everything. So underlying
2: all of it, there'd be some kind of like uh, fundamental physics that is manifested differently in these different regions.
0: Right. Yeah. And kind of, kind of a way to think about that is, uh, you know, imagine a pencil balanced on its, on its tip, um, in that region, you know, it's, it's like, that's a, there, there's a great deal of symmetry. It explains a lot. It, when it falls down, it falls in a certain location, but there's nothing fundamentally different about it falling in the, uh, you know, 180 degrees. It just looks different because it's in a lower energy state. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. And then beyond that, we get into quantum mechanics, which we might get into,
2: uh, which I think is super interesting. But I think most, most when when people are talking about the multiverse, they're talking about those two levels, I think,
0: usually. Um, Yeah, because those are the ones where I think we at least, we have the potential of establishing that they exist. I don't know that we can ever measure them, but I do think there's some scientific questions we can ask. Although, even within the quantum mechanics one, figuring out if we were to establish which interpretation of quantum mechanics is correct, that might weigh in on the, the validity of the quantum mechanical multiverse. Right. I'm restraining myself from going into that.
2: <laughs> uh so um I often hear uh when I'm talking to um my friends and uh particularly Christians and that's them that they kinda have this idea of the multiverse as just something scientists sat around in a smoke filled room and just made up because it sounded cool. Uh the Bastion of scientific research known as answers in Genesis calls it a rescue device for the big Bang cosmology so uh, what is it that convinces some scientists at least that we might have be living in a multiverse of some sort
0: well so. I can tell you what convinces me that that's at least a possibility. I mean, you know, I think there are, I, I do not doubt that there are some scientists out there that say, oh, hey, the multiverse might solve these problems with theology. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think in general, a lot of what led to the acceptance of the multiverse is, hey, there's science, There's a scientific basis for this. And then what people do with it is a whole different question Uh but uh, what, where I thought, hey, the multiverse might actually exist was when I started thinking about what happens during inflation and how does inflation work. And uh, to, just to give a little bit of the scientific background for that, as people were studying the universe, what they noticed was that the cosmic microwave background radiation was the same in every direction. You know, and you're going back to your question of how can something be 50 billion light years away? Well, there, there's a problem that arises in that because that's the most distant thing we can see. Mm-hmm. So light has been traveling from, you know, a, a region that's now 50 billion light years away. It's just now getting to Earth and we measure its temperature. Well, we look in the diametrically opposite direction and the same thing has been happening. Well, those two regions were... It, they can't talk to each other. They can't talk to each other. So why? Do, yeah, exactly. Why do they have the same temperature? Well, uh, part of how inflation solves that or explains that phenomena is that uh, they were actually in the same region and could talk to one another. And then this epoch of inflation actually drove them farther apart so that now they couldn't talk, or given the normal expansion, they could never talk to each other. But inflation meant that at some point in time, they were in contact with one another. So that was that was a cool thing in favor of inflation. It explained why the cosmic microwave background radiation could be the same to one part in 100,000 in every direction. There's another problem that inflation solved, was when we look at our universe, it has very close to a flat geometry. And, and what I mean by flat is not piece of paper. Uh, it's, it's, it's how do light rays behave in the universe? And um, the, the best I can explain that is, you, know, if you, say, you can't talk about it in 3D because that's just hard. But if you go down to 2D, <clears throat> you can have three different types, of, three different classes of geometries. You could have something like the surface of a ball where if you take parallel lines on the surface of a ball, eventually they converge with one another, they cross. Um, you know think of like the lines of longitude on on the Earth at the equator they 're all parallel. they all converge to the pole that 's what happened in a closed geometry, no matter how you slice it um, in an open geometry, those parallel lines diverge they get further apart, and in a closed geometry, which is kind of like a piece of paper, those parallel lines uh, all... flat sorry yeah, sorry flat. sorry flat geometry, yeah, thanks. Um, In a flat geometry, the parallel lines always stay the same distance apart. And it wasn't, oddly enough, when I recognized that, I'm like, oh, that's what that odd statement was back in geometry class when I was in high school. They said, oh, yeah, parallel lines always stay the same distance apart in a Euclidean geometry. Well, Euclidean Mm -hmm. geometry is another way of saying flat geometry. And so, uh, you know, if things are flat, parallel lines always stay the same distance apart. And so when we look at our universe... We measure it relatively close to flat. And this was even 30, 40 years ago when we couldn't really make the measurements. It's still within a factor of 10 of flat. But the problem is, flat is unstable. Over time, the universe, if it's a little bit, deviates from flat, it will either go to closed or it will go to open. It's you know again, going back to balancing a pencil on its point. It may stay there, but the moment it moves away, it moves away very rapidly. So flat is unstable, yet lo and behold, we measure our universe very close to flat. Well, inflation explains why that would be, because inflation takes whatever the geometry was, whether it was closed, whether it was open, whether it was flat, and it just takes that small region, expands it very large. Imagine taking a golf ball. You can see the curvature, but you can only see something about the size of a quarter. Now expand it to the size of the Earth. You still only see the size of the quarter, but it looks flat within that size of the quarter, that's true. So, okay, so inflation explains why is the cosmic microwave background radiation the same, it explains why the universe looks flat, and it also explains why there are no magnetic monopoles. And, and believe it or not, that's actually, solving that problem was what actually led to the invention of inflation. And so uh, inflation solves all that, but, but it does so by, by taking a very small region, making it very large, which means that there is stuff beyond the realm of beyond the limits of what we can see, and so this idea, of what I'll call a level one multiverse, and I just say right up front that I'm shamelessly taking that terminology from Max Tegmark. Uh, he developed it, and I liked it. I say, hey, hey, this is great, so I will <laughs> advance advance the terminology and give him credit. Um, but that level one multiverse. If inflation happened, we live in a level one multiverse. There's stuff beyond that we can't see. There's there's stuff beyond what we can see. And if inflation happened, it tells us that it's out there. Okay. So if there was inflation, then
2: the question of whether there's a multiverse of some sort is settled and the answer is yes.
0: Yes. That, that's yeah. that's my understanding. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to be convinced that that's not the case, <laughs> but I don't think you're going to be able to do it. So Fair enough. So... Uh,
2: how big then would big be like how much would be outside of this 50 uh billion light year cone that we're
0: in well so the the we can put a limit on how large it must be and we know it's got to be at least 50 billion light years across yeah (laughs) um how big there is no way to put a number on that um, even some kind of small estimates say in order to count for some of what we measure in our universe, it needs to be at least a thousand times larger, but most cosmologists that I hear writing and talking about this, uh, would argue that space is spatially infinite. Oh, wow. Okay. So if that, I think now we can segue into
2: some of the fine tuning things because often that's in uh, Christian circles the, the multiverse of couch and fine tuning terms. And so for anyone who somehow stumbled on this episode and has never heard of the fine tuning problem uh basically the idea and correct me if i oversimplify it the idea is that the we find ourselves in a universe that seems to some extent in some way fine tuned for like for us for complex observers and so the natural question is well how come you know how come things are in such a way that uh we are here and so that's the fine tuning problem and of course uh the Christian answer is, well, it's that way because God made it that way. And, you know. And he wanted us around for whatever reason. So um so it seems like the level one multiverse could go uh part of the way to answering it when it comes to like you call it environmental fine tuning. So like the the earth and how well adapted that is to spawning life, right? Mm-hmm. If we had a spatially infinite multiverse i mean that would mean that there'd be an infinite number of life supporting planets right
0: so in principle yes i mean there there is a an assumption smuggled into that statement that i that i, that I think is important to talk about but yeah your basic idea is correct you know the, the assumption is that things largely look the same beyond what we can see that compared to what we can see and in that sense, you know, if the Earth needs to be a certain size, if you got to have a certain kind of star, if the distance needs to be the same amount, uh, you got to have th- – those are all things that we look and see. Stars can be different. We can look – planets can be different size. They can be a different – so anything like that that's kind of envirom- environmental where it could change and we see that it can change, um, then in principle, yes, if you spread that out and, or you know, if space is just large enough, with every – Probability or fine tuning. And again, I think how we say that is important, but, you know, generally fine tuning is couched in some sort of probability or ratio. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're talking about probabilities and ratios, you have to talk about the ratio, but you also have to talk about the sample size. Right. Uh, You know, the illustration always give, you know, if you're sitting down and playing poker and I get delta ace, king, queen, ace, king, queen, jack, 10 of spades, I'm saying, wow, that's improbable. That's unlikely. It's like somebody designed me to get this. But if I now go and say, you know, there are a billion people playing this game. Those are going to happen. In fact, there better be more than me that has them because that's a one in 2.5 million chance of getting that. So if we've got 10 right. million hands, there ought to be a lot of them. And so effectively, the level one multiverse provides this really large sample size that overwhelms whatever probability or, or ratio you're talking about.
2: Do you think that it needs to be spatially infinite to do that? Obviously, an infinite sample size would take care of any ratio problem you've asked, but we just sort of not worry about that. But if the multiverse, if this level one multiverse, is re- truly a thousand times larger than our observable universe, um, is that, in your opinion, big enough to take care of environmental fine-tuning? It seems like I mean, there's a lot of planets in just our observable universe, and if the universe as a whole is a thousand times larger than that. I mean, if those
0: numbers get truly I literally can't contain that kind of number in my brain. Well, no, you're right, they do get larger. The question is, how tuned are they? I mean, you know, if if I say, you know, I've got something between one and 100, and I can only measure three, well, if it could be integers between there and I can measure three, well, I can say, all right, well, that's, you know, this is tuned to one part or, you know, three parts in 100. Uh-huh. Well, if I now say, all right, I know the sample size is eight times larger, I'm now 20 or I've got 24 samples out there, but that's still 24 out of 100. That's one and a quarter. So it kind of depends on how precise the particular the particular factor or parameter is and what the size is. And so obviously, infinite would allow overwhelm any probability or any ratio but the question or anything smaller than that or anything finite, now you have to ask the question, how tuned is the parameter and is the sample size large enough? And those are not quantities that everybody agrees on. And so, uh, you know, I can find people who say, well, there's only two or three parameters. I can say there are people who say there's 100 parameters. And, you know, so it's, it's that's a, a subject of scientific discussion there. Gotcha. So. uh nasa has been looking for
2: exoplanets and they say mm-hmm. about half of uh, i saw on their website about half of sun
0: like stars have a rocky
2: world is their estimation
0: um and uh, i've heard a little closer to it, i've heard it down about 20 percent, but I mean, well, it's yeah. not really significantly different but i i think that the difference comes in sun like and if you combine oh, okay, it right. that yeah because okay.
2: if, if you broaden it to less sun like stars then that changes it fair point um so I, I guess I'm asking how fine tuned do you think it is like in the book, uh, the the words you use were the probability stack up against finding even one planet that would fit the bill. Do you think that the the conditions needed for life are really that fine tuned that we wouldn't expect to find more than one?
0: So I- you know, I've, I've thought a lot about how how I would phrase that. You know, that book may be long enough ago that I, that was before I thought carefully about how to, how to talk about that. It was 2008, to be fair. So it is a while. It's oh, a fair bit ago. Yeah, I'll give you. That. Yeah. Um, and again, the question is, we're we're dealing with areas where we don't have all the scientific knowledge, and so mm-hmm. I, I kind of see there's two classes of models of how people look at that. One is. Uh, which I, I kind of term a minimalist mim, yeah, minimalist model, where get get liquid water and life's going to happen. Um, so, in that sense, you've got to have the right distance from the star. There's probably a few atmospheric constraints, but even within our solar system, there's lots of places where liquid water has existed. Uh, early in Mars history, it almost certainly mm-hmm. had liquid water. There may be liquid water on Europa today, um, you know, buried under ice, and so. In that minimalist model, there's lots of different ways to get water. And so where you're going to have water, you're going to have the you know life arise, at least in some reasonable fractions of those. Um, and then there's kind of what a uh, uh, maximalist isn't the right way to say it. I never have come up with a good word for it, but uh, a more strict set of conditions where, you know, when I look at what's gone on on Earth, um, you know, early Earth was very different than the Earth of today. Uh, you know, Earth. the Earth's oceans were filled with water. There was virtually no continents or landmass to speak of. Uh, very primitive to no life, no oxygen in the atmosphere. The sun was 30 to 40 percent dimmer than it is today. In the last four billion, four to four and a half billion years, there have been incredible astronomical changes, geological changes, atmospheric changes, biological changes. And yet in the midst of all of those changes that could very easily have just decimated Earth's capacity to host life, Earth's temperature, to the best we can measure it, has stayed within about a 20-degree Celsius window, right around where liquid water can exist. And so uh, that, to me, strikes of an orchestration where you know, when you've got this great oxygenation event, which is going to put oxygen in the atmosphere, remove all the methane, create carbon dioxide and water, that's going to drive the planet into a global ice age because you've now removed a very potent greenhouse gas from the atmosphere. But that's also right around the time where a significant amount of tectonic activity is happening, which puts greenhouse gas, you know, which which counteracts that. And so, all that to say is that, you know, there's kind of this minimalist model where we get water, we're going to have life. And there's kind of a maximalist model where there's a there's more than we even know to talk about. But yet we see this extreme changes going on. And yet the conditions that life requires have been maintained. And what I would say the way I would characterize that is apart from God's work, I wouldn't expect to see that anywhere in the universe. I don't know.
2: Ten to the twenty-five seems like a really big sample size.
0: <laughs> it, it is, but we're talking about some pretty extreme things. It's the 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 range of conditions in the universe that are inhospitable to life are incredibly large compared to the ones that we know are hospitable to life. That's true. Most most of the universe wouldn't
2: be conducive to human life if you were just like thrown into a random spot of the universe. The odds are not good. <laughs> <So> <laughs> right. That's true. Um, okay. So. The environmental conditions, maybe, it, it really comes down to how tuned the Earth is, how, how special the Earth is. Mm-hmm. And that's something we might actually be able to answer, perhaps not in my lifetime, but maybe in my children's lifetime. Maybe they'll get to know. So maybe that answer will, will be settled. Um Moving on to the other fine-tuning problem, which I think you called, uh, now I can't remember what you called it, like the universal fine-tuning problem when it comes to the, the oh, right. physical cost Fundamental. There. Thank you. I swear I read the book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I told you that because you knew I had divided it into two classes. So you knew I had to That's read true. it. Well, you, you did that in like, uh, uh,
2: the first few pages. So I wouldn't have had oh, it. Like but in any case. <laughs> you kind <got it>, of,
0: <laughs> <laughs> In any
2: case, um, when it comes to fundamental fine tuning, uh, that one seems a lot trickier because mm-hmm. while we have at least a sample size of one and we can look at other planets, um, if there is. Uh, Fine tuning when it comes to the physical constants, it seems like we're pretty much stuck with the physical constants we have. So, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned how um, the laws of physics could manifest in a range of possibilities, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that within some, there's some kind of range that would permit life, however broad or narrow that range is. Um, how would we go about assessing that kind of probability? Because, like, we've got the sample size of one, right, and we don't know how a lot of the physics came about. So, like, when, when we say things like, you know, it, it's improbable we get this constant like this with this vast range,
0: well, how do we know that there's actually this vast range? No, that's, that's, you have identified a extremely difficult, if not unsolvable problem in physics, is that, you know, so we say, okay, the speed of light is 3.8, uh, 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second could it be different well we could in principle envision it being different i mean i could i can do calculations where the speed of light is 10 times larger or 20% smaller but mm. what we don't know is can it actually have a different value and that is going to be model dependent uh, you know there are cert- you know in, in this idea that the laws of physics are unified and as the universe cools down you get symmetry breaking and you get these certain results in that model then yes Certain parameters of the universe, like the speed of light or the gravitational constant or the electromagnetic constant, could presumably take different values. But the challenge in this universe is we have no way to measure that or we have no way of it's a reasonable idea. But I don't know how you get experimental evidence that validates that it's a correct idea. Right. Right. So.
2: Uh, so you said it's model-dependent, the answer to that question. Um, so really, it seems like the answer is, we don't know how likely we are or constants are. Okay, that's fair. Um, can you give us a feel, at least in your opinion, like what kind of level of tuning are we talking about here, potentially?
0: Uh you know, with the caveat that we've already discussed that, you know, like with the planets, I can talk about whether well, there's this there's this many planets and there's only this many have. And so I could put numbers to that. Um, we I really don't know what the speed of light could vary. And that's that's one of the challenges when you're talking about the multiverse and does it address this? is that we cannot measure, you know, let's just say that, yes, the the speed of light can vary, uh, you know, plus or minus a factor of 10 with some sort of resolution to it. Well, given enough other universes out there, presumably you could explain just by statistical reasoning why our universe has this value. Okay, let's Mm -hmm. just say that. The challenge is there's no way of determining whether that's correct or we go out and every one of those multiverses has the identical value for the speed of light. Both of those are equally valid logically, according to what we know. But there's, to my knowledge, there's no way to experiment and say, well, it could be different. With one exception, it is possible, and there are people who are doing this these sorts of experiments that when you look over the distant reaches of space, it is possible that The constants could change within our observable universe, and there are people who have looked for, uh, you know, you can look at distant quasars, and it gives you a measure of the fine structure constant, which is a mixture of the speed of light and Planck's constant, and uh, as a physicist, I got to know this, it's either the mass of the electron or the charge of the electron. I'm pretty sure it's the charge.
2: Tell me which one it was and we'll edit out the other one.
0: <laughs> I'm going to go with charge and I'll, I'll claim I just need to look at it in a book if somebody gets too gripey at me. but So what people are looking for is, you know, we can measure that value here in the lab. And with our telescopes, we can measure what it is out in these distant uh, quasars. And we can ask the question, is there any evidence that it's changed? And Granted, the statistics and it's right are hard to do and our uncertainties are hard to quantify, but there's some marginal evidence that maybe these things change over the expansion of the universe by one part and maybe 100,000. So that would give us a way of measuring, yeah, maybe these funda- these quote-unquote fundamental constants could take on different values. Uh, that's, a, that, that's one that won't take your lifetime and my lifetime to assess, I think somewhere within the next maybe decade or two, we might be able to get a better handle on that, that way of looking at it.
2: That So then at least we would know the changing of the constants is a thing that can
0: happen potentially. Yeah, that, that's then, what that would demonstrate, yes. Yeah, that's both
2: neat and terrifying. Uh, <laughs> I remember in my modern physics class, which is I think a sophomore level class or something as far as I went, but. Uh, you know, I went in as an engineer and there's, you know, physics and there's constants and things are preserved and my professor's like, and, you know, definitely on short time scales, you know, uh, entropy isn't preserved. I was like, okay, I mean, it's stochastic anyway. He's like, and also angular momentum. I was like, what did you just say? Like, you know, like, uh, yeah. So just the idea that the fine structure constant might be unstable is unsettling,
0: but <laughs> Well anyway. It is at some level. And what's the fascinating part about that is that to the extent that might be true, that actually takes those fundamental fine tuning and make them environmental. Because in principle, if I were to move far enough away in our to get into the just this level one multiverse, if I were to move far enough away, I might be in a region where those fundamental things could be different. So th- this is the sort of dynamics of uh, you know I put it all in the terms of speculative cosmology, not mm-hmm. as in a pejorative sense, but it's like well it might be and it's reasonable, but we don't have the experimental data to weigh in one way or the other on it.
2: So is there any hope for uh, confirmation of a level two multiverse? I know that one of the reasons that uh, people think there might be a level two multiverse is that certain interpretations of a string theory would lead to different of physics, right and so um if string theory is correct then a level two multiverse might kind of fall out of that is there i know you're not a string theorist right but is there any hope for confirming
0: that in anybody's lifetime um Maybe or maybe not. So you know. So I made a statement not too long ago or earlier in the show where if inflation happened, we live in a level one multiverse. Right. Well, you know, physicists aren't aren't uh, content with just saying, "Oh, yes, inflation happened." They want to say, "Well, what what caused inflation to happen? How do we explain it?" And that's an entirely fun discussion to have uh, because there's these potentials and things are rolling from the ground state or you know from this excited state down to ground state, and you get inflation and decaying of false vacuum, and all, I mean, all sorts of fun terminology to play around with. But the, the, where that comes into where inflation can now explain our universe is that there was always this problem with inflation, is that if our universe started, and in this early epoch, there was this phase change that caused inflation to happen, and then inflation stopped, one of the problems with that is that it always produced a clumpy universe, And not clumpy as in stars, planets, and galaxies, but clumpy as in the cosmic microwave background radiation would have all sorts of different temperatures, no matter what direction you looked. Or every direction you looked would have a different temperature. It was called the graceful exit problem. Well, uh, in the, the late 70s, early 80s, people, or Alan Guth and others figured out how to solve this by saying, you know what, if you've got this region of stuff, we'll call it a false vacuum, that just very rapidly expands, where it decays to the ground state, now you've got a bubble that's formed in there, and that bubble will contain our universe. And so now you've got inflation and our universe and all the it, – it explains our universe in a way that matches the observations. And so in this version of inflation where you've got you know something that just rapidly expands and it decays – It's you watch a pot boil, it's not just gonna have one boil, it's gonna have a bunch of bubbles. And so similarly, this false vacuum is gonna decay in a whole bunch of places, presumably create a whole bunch of different other universes. And you can do that in multiple ways, but all of the mechanisms that drive that, well, virtually all the mechanisms or all that we've investigated, produce this level two multiverse. So going back to your question, could we ever confirm that? Well. If inflation happened, we live in a level one multiverse. If any of our mechanisms for explaining inflation are correct, we live in a level two multiverse. So if we could in some way say, oh, this kind of inflation produces this signature in our universe, then we could say, ah, that counts as evidence for this mechanism of inflation. And the consequence of this mechanism is there's a level two multiverse. So that's the sort of confirmation we could potentially get. Well, that's a lot better than nothing. (laughs) It It is, and it it makes it a fun scientific uh, arena to investigate and has a lot of just cool philosophical implications as well. Well, that's a great segue. Uh,
2: So we've talked about the physics. Uh, What does this mean when it comes to talking about God? So um, obviously, if God's infinitely powerful. He's perfectly capable of making as many universes as he'd like. But do you think that has any kind of philosophical implication on Christianity specifically or just God's claims in general?
0: Well, that was originally my question when I started investigating this. Because, you know, a lot of the things that I first heard when I first heard about the multiverse uh, and people were talking about it, it's and, and the sentiment has been expressed for a long time since, it's either God or the multiverse. Yeah. Um, and so you know, any to me, any evidence for the multiverse, well, that counts against God. And so that was kind of the approach I took. And then as I started reading and investigating, I'm like, oh, you know, if inflation happened, we live in a level one multiverse. That's that's not a scientifically controversial idea. Maybe, maybe the multiverse is turn, gonna turn out to be right. And so that got me asking the question, okay, exactly what you asked. How does that impact Christianity? And and what I've recognized is this. Um The Bible actually talks about things that we could call a multiverse. Uh, You know, there's this creation. Bible talks about the angelic or the spiritual realm, which in some sense is another universe, if you will. Um, The Bible talks about how there's going to be a future where this universe is accomplished its purpose, it's gonna be destroyed, and God will create a new creation that, given the brief description we have, certainly looks like the way physics plays out is very different. And so the idea of a multiverse is not unbiblical. I mean, the Bible describes multiple realms of crea- that God has created. And so there's nothing inherently about the multiverse that is unbiblical. I do think there are certain ways of looking at the multiverse or certain uh, extrapolations of how you use the multiverse to explain what we see that do cause problems. Uh, one of those being that if just... If everything is purely physical, this is the one that I think resonates the biggest to me, is that if everything is purely physical, then Jeff Zwierink is just a proper assemblage of atoms with the right velocities and momentums in the right locations. Well, level one multiverse says that configuration of atoms is gonna happen somewhere else. And so Jeff Zwering not only exists here on Earth, but he exists somewhere else. He could exist out in the vacuum of space multiple times. And if the universe is infinite, spatially infinite, that level one multiverse, not only is there one, not only just one Jeff Zwering, there's an infinite number of them. And so these are kind of some of the theological places where I don't know that it's such a big deal with Jeff Zwerink, but Jesus Christ also had a physical body. And so is Jesus Christ getting replicated throughout the mold? These are the sorts of theological questions that I find interesting. I wonder, like, did every Jesus Christ get crucified? Maybe in some other places, you know, he
2: was sacrificed in some other way, you know? Uh,
0: Exactly. These are the sorts of questions that arise. But again, notice that that's not, oh, the multiverse says that. That's the multiverse and this additional stipulation that human life, human life specifically, is solely physical. And so that, that, those are some of the, or the interesting philosophical and theological questions that I find arise out of this discussion. So if, if it turns
2: out that we do live in a level two multiverse, it seems like that at least has the potential to address the fine tuning problem mm-hmm. from a, just kind of a, a selection effect. You know, we find ourselves in the version of the universe that we could find ourselves in. That's right. not surprising. But it doesn't seem like that would, like you said, necessarily say, well, therefore, God doesn't exist because mm-hmm. all, it, it could, I think, at most take out a potential argument for God's existence. But it's not certainly the only argument. For God's
0: existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and you're what you're describing is yeah. kind of my original strugglings with this, because when I first recognized, hey, the multiverse might exist. Well, I see the implication for the... Uh, You know, these fine tuning type arguments or the prob I'll call them probability arguments because there's other ways of talking about fine tuning. But the probability arguments for the fine tuning, because large sample size overwhelms however small probabilities you have. Mm -hmm. And there was this other implication that was unknown what what the consequences of this was going to be, is that once inflation starts, it goes on forever. Uh, And it's just this bizarre phenomenon that whatever is expanding, it it may decay, but in the time, whatever decays in that time, there has been more stuff expanded. So the total amount of expanding stuff is always constant. And so once inflation starts, it goes on forever. The question that naturally arose from that is, might it have always been going on forever? Mm -hmm. So this inflationary multiverse, not only might it have solved the probability fine-tuning arguments, it might also solve whether there's a beginning or not. It might have gotten rid of the beginning. And so there was a better part of a year where I'm sitting around investigating this where, like I said, it doesn't. it's not that that would disprove Christianity. It just says it may remove arguments that I'm using for Christianity.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's um, something, if, if nobody
2: takes anything else away from this on both sides, because I, I hear it from my fellow atheists, and I hear it from uh, my Christian friends, too, where they, they cast it just like you said, where, well, God doesn't exist because the multiverse, and that doesn't necessarily follow. I hear that from my atheist friends. And okay. then you've got people on the other side who are just like, uh, who, who I think are motivated and sometimes in their objections, not because of the scientific evidence, but because they feel threatened. You know, I don't want to psychoanalyze, but I know mm-hmm. that can be a thing. And I don't think that's necessary. Like, you know, whatever the truth is, that's what the truth is, right? You know. And mm-hmm. if God exists and the evidence we see should support that. So we shouldn't have any, you know, no words. Um so Amen. <laughs> you know, sorry, i get off my soapbox. <laughs> there. Uh okay. Well I'm going to indulge myself now because there's another level of multiverse that you bring up very briefly in the book. You barely mention it just enough time to um Aside, but I'm going to step into that breach anyway. The third one has to do with quantum mechanics, and um, specifically the Everettian or many-worlds interpretation Mm -hmm. of quantum mechanics. Um, And basically, my understanding of that is that well, quantum mechanics has, as we observe it now, a base level of indeterminacy. We we have a wave function. You're in a superposition of A and B somebody observes it, there's some kind of observation, and now the wave function collapses into A or B indeterminately with some kind of probability. Mm -hmm. And why does it do that is a question that not many people seem to ask, but, you know, it it, it is a question. So um, if one of the interpretations of quantum mechanics is right, the Everettian view, the wave function doesn't collapse, they both exist, they just split off into different universes, right? Right. Kind of. And so winding it from the big bang to the future you'd have this branching tapestry of mm-hmm. all possibilities so first how
0: crazy does that sound to you <laughs> i guess well there's part of it that sounds really crazy but i i do have to wrestle with this fact that um one one of the ways that you can go about calculating a, a quantum event, you know, whether it's electron scattering, whatever you're talking about, is you draw out all the Feynman diagrams and you just calculate all the probabilities of all of them. And what's obscured in that language of that is that you're assuming that the, election, the electron actually takes every possible path and what it goes. So you're saying this has a contribution, this has a contribution, this has a contribution. And so you're saying the electron did all of this and, and we, we sum it up and we get the right answer. And what's amazing is you get the right answer when you do that. Um, you also get the right answer when you assume there's a wave function and it collapses into one state or the other. And what's interesting about all that is so I've got to wrestle with the the uh, efficacy of calculating based on this idea that all of these worlds exist. Um, but there's also this recognition that uh, you know, at least... Five years ago was the last time I checked. If you go look on the Wikipedia page and you say interpretations of quantum mechanics, you'll find this chart that lists 17, 18 different interpretations of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. And what's unusual about that is nobody goes out there and says, here's my interpretation of general relativity. (laughs) The mechanism of general relativity drives the equations we don't know what's going on with quantum mechanics. And so you could have the wave function collapses. You could have, it takes every possible path. You could take all those worlds and you're just traversing a trajectory through all of those worlds. Uh, You know, and there's other ones, you know, there's decoherence and all different ways of looking at this, which to me basically just says, okay, we are very effective at calculating how or the probabilities of quantum mechanical events, but we really don't have a good understanding of the, actual reality behind it. And that gives me great pause to say, well, oh, the Everett's many worlds interpretation is correct, or Copenhagen's waveform collapse is the correct. We can calculate whatever we want. And maybe maybe as we move into the future, we're going to be able to devise experiments that will differentiate them but right now, there's a lot of different interpretations. And so, uh, you know, you want to take an Everett, Everett, I'm not even sure how to say that as an adjective, but uh, take Everett's, operation. yeah, okay, great. Um, Everett's interpretation, great, go do that. Um, if you want to claim now that this is the way reality works, now we've got a whole different level of discussion, which I don't think you can, you can validate by what we know.
2: Is, since I have a physicist in front of me, and I don't often have one sitting in front of me, is there any work being done to try to find the answer to this question? It seems like a lot of physicists have the idea, at least from my outside looking in perspective, uh, of, you know, shut up and calculate. We've got great equations that give us good results. And while I can empathize with that view as an engineer, you know, shut up and calculate is everything I do. Yeah, um, Is there is that an active field of research that people are actually trying to figure out?
0: Oh, yes, they are. I mean, I'm not it's I have not done a lot of work reading in that, but I do know there are people trying to figure out and 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 the way the the model out there that I've heard that seems or at least one of the more popular models is this idea of decoherence that when you make a measurement um, instead of A and B. So there's up and down. And when you make a measurement, it's down. So B just disappears what happens is there's this decoherence where this reality becomes what is the one you interact with. And there's a question of, you know, what is actually going on over there with the other. But so th- so there is a very active area of research and trying to devise experiments where these interpretations may have had a lot of common ground, but on this experiment, they're going to predict different things. And it's a challenging area. I don't know that there's any Decisive work in that area, but I do know it's a very active area of research. So, this
2: this type of multiverse doesn't seem to bear on the fine-tuning problem as directly as the other two do, because for obvious reasons, uh, because the same physics would for if the Everettian view or the decoherence view or whatever view it is, that'd be the same on the physics, right? But let's let's say just uh, for the sake of discussion. Let's say that Everett is right, and it is mm-hmm. the many worlds interpretation. That's the kind of world we live in. Um, it seems like that might have some potential bearing on theological discussions, like you kind of what you talked about with the infinite multiverse. Mm-hmm. You know, what about Jesus and having, you know, he, he if he had a physical body, you know, there, were there tens of thousands of Jesuses? You know, that's right. That could be tricky. Uh, if in the Everettian view, it's basically any of any possible quantum events. Uh, that could happen. Did in fact happen. Mm-hmm. Then it seems like there'd be. It, it seems like you'd have per, not necessarily infinite, you know, but a large, large, arbitrarily large number of events. You know, a version of me where I'm me sitting here and I'm an atheist, and a version of me where I'm didn't deconvert. I'm still a Christian, and maybe one where my grandfather never left India, so I'm a Muslim. You know, <laughs> so it seems like that could potentially have some theological implications, right? Because, you know, then there's no unique me anymore, at least in some sense there's not.
0: Right. I I think it does have profound theological implications and, and not just for Christian theology. I think for what it says about how the world is, um, you know, because essentially, I mean, I, I may be wrong, but as I'm sitting here thinking or I've, I've thought about what does that sort of explanation do? So essentially, the reason why things are the way they are is there's this large statistical population, and we just happen to be one of those populations. Hmm. That seems a very deterministic way of talking about things. So, You know, here we are having a discussion, and at some level, you would say you made a choice that Christianity is not true, and I've made a choice that says Christianity is true. We actually think we made a choice, but if that way of looking at it is correct, we're just in the distribution of things where that happened. So, at some level, it seems like at a very fundamental level, we're just pawns in the outworking of the laws of physics, which May be true, but that is a theologically disturbing conclusion to come to, regardless of whether you think God exists or not. Yeah, I mean,
2: it—it it, certainly—I I tend to lean towards the idea that the universe is deterministic anyway, just because okay. it to my sensibilities. But I'm not married to the idea. I mean, it—it it seems likely, at least at a, at a base level, there's some indeterminism, unless certain branches of quantum mechanics are right. So that doesn't bother me. Too, too much, but it certainly would be an issue with, um, like you said, questions of choice. Or mm-hmm. it, it seems like it would just completely throw away free will because you just, you know, it's the crapshoot. It's the which branch you, you, in big air quotes, you happen for people who aren't on YouTube, the big air quotes, uh, which branch you happen to be on. It's just kind right. of, you know,
0: in, in one branch, Hitler got into art school, and <laughs> everything's fine. You know? Yeah. Well, and and beyond that, I do worry what that will do for the or the implications it has for science. And that may sound like an odd statement, but uh, you know, just to, to to give a little illustration, when I was first in college, uh, you know, you take a, an intro physics class, and there's a lab you take, and one of the labs you have these air tracks, and the carts move along, and you can put dots on pieces of paper and this is back where you actually had to have rulers and no, I mean, yeah, none, of, none of the smart technology that exists today. But uh, one of our tracks, there was just this dot that was just way off from what we expected. And so one of the questions in there was explain, you know, what are sources of error? What Explain why mm-hmm. it is the way it is. And so my lab partner uh, you know, said, well, wow, that was a passing black hole. But okay, that's kind of funny. So we put that on there. Our our professor wasn't particularly amused with that. (laughs) But that's actually a pretty reasonable explanation. It, It is an explanation for why that point would have been different. Now, if the multiverse is true, how do I determine that that's not the correct answer? Well, almost everything we do in science is not, or sorry, everything we do in science is there are a myriad of explanations, these are the most likely. If the multiverse exists, we're no longer assuming that what we found corresponds to reality. We're just finding the most likely explanation. But in the multiverse, there was somewhere where a black hole passed by that and caused the dot to be in the wrong place. How do I know that? You know, so, you know, we, we know that science works. We know that, this, that, that the, the formalism and the structure and the thought process and the, the system we've built works but it's predicated on basically being able to ignore all the highly improbable events. Well, now we're using the multiverse to solve a highly improbable event. Why do we do it there but not everywhere else? And this is, I I don't know whether that's an unsolvable problem or not, but it does seem part and parcel with using the multiverse to solve rare event problems, because now you have to deal with every rare event. And that becomes problematic because there are other very rare ways of getting life in the universe besides the history of life that we see here on earth. And now you have to, you have to, you have to wrestle with those sorts of questions as well.
2: It seems like you could just do the same thing that we've always done and just kind of ignore the very rare events. You know, like if you just looked at the ensemble of the, of the multiverse um, and if you have an event that's, However many times as likely as another event absent any other evidence any evidence to the contrary, we're probably in the more likely one, even if there are you know a multitude of different options if you were just throwing a dart at the wall, there's still just a bigger target for the more likely event i mean I'm not sure why the multiverse would necessarily throw that model away
0: so uh, my suspicion is that there's there's an aspect to where. I know I have been inculcated in the idea that we're finding the, ex- the the most likely event is the one that corresponds to the truth. You know, there, there's, I mean, mm-hmm. Occam's razor, as it plays out in science, is the simplest explanation that accounts for all the data is likely to be true. Mm-hmm. So there's this philosophical idea that we brought into doing science, but that's it's predicated on the idea that we're actually trying to figure out what, or that we're trying to figure out what actually happened. And if you now remove the basis for that, which the multiverse would do, uh, you know, you're correct that there's statistically certainly more likely ones than others. But if if you play with that way of looking at things long enough, what prevents you from getting to the place where it's like, well, this is a fun game to figure out what's the most likely, but it has no correspondence to what's actually going on. Why do I keep doing this? You could. Well, it would certainly take away the possibility of being able to say definitively
2: that X happened. You know, mm-hmm. the best I think you could say is, "Well, X, is the likeliest explanation," and that just has to be good enough to deal with it. You know, uh, I, I guess the answer to why we keep doing it is because. It produces good results. I mean, as long as it continues to make accurate predictions, I guess we're still good, uh, at least to my mind. Um, it, it could. I think that's the kind of problem that philosophers of science would wrestle with and get very worked up about. And I'm not certain that
0: Joe, you know, engineer would get very worked up about it. At no, I, and that's a fair point. And I, I, like I said, I don't think if we were to immediately say, oh, yeah, the multiverse is the good explanation for everything. My guess is, is that science would continue on for another 20, 30, 40 years and largely be unaffected. But at some point, that next generation is going to be inculcated in a different way of looking at the world than I was.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I wonder what that will produce. Yeah. Interesting time. Well, we've been going about an hour and i really <laughs> want
2: to yeah we've been going for 56 and a half minutes give or take some seconds here and there um so i want to wrap up a bit um is there anything going on any books you're writing that you want to talk about real quick because i will not i only have a sample size of two i've only read two of them but
0: two are very good so <laughs> well i'm encouraged to hear that thank you uh you know I, a lot of what i've been thinking about lately is just Um, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, the kind of that foray that we're making as a, as a, uh, his humanity out into the digital world. And, uh, you know, AI, like, like the multiverse, there's different kinds of AI and the AI that I think of as, you know, the R2D2s, the sentient silicone creatures, uh, that, AI is here, but it's not that AI. And so I think that's a very interesting discussion. And just kind of been thinking about how to interact with that. And and the argument I'm trying to make in there, as I've thought about it, is that AI is a pretty powerful tool. Um, The question, given the power of that tool, I think the worldview we adopt is going to go a long way towards whether this tool is used for to benefit humanity or to, to the detriment of humanity. And I, I'm going to trying to make an argument that I think Christianity is the worldview that allows us to bring the good while minimizing the harm. And so that's kind of what I've been working on.
2: Okay. That's interesting. I, I think the, the field of AI research is super fascinating, uh, possibly troubling. You know, if you read about strong AI and the possibility of the singularity where Basically, at that point, it'll be down to how well the guy in the basement programmed it to whether we have a benevolent overlord or the humanity goes extinct, you know? <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's super interesting. So uh, I'll be on the lookout for that. And I wanted to thank you again for taking time out of your day to come talk to us on Reasons stuff. Doubt. It's just me today. I guess I probably should have mentioned this before. My host, Jared, is feeling sick that he wasn't able to come. Uh, for anybody who's wondering why it was just me, he didn't But thanks a ton for coming. I super enjoyed it. And uh, I hope that we'll be able to talk again because
0: this, this, this is like the highlight of my week. Well, I, I appreciate the time to be on here. Uh, just fascinating. I, I love talking about the multiverse, but just really enjoyed it. I think there's just a lot of cool, fun conversations that grow and yes, yeah, some really good questions. So thanks for having me on.
2: Thanks. Uh, so make sure you check. Voice, uh, English. Make sure to check out (laughs) Jeff Stuffy's with uh, Reasons to Believe, like we talked about. Um, And be on the lookout for our new stuff on the horizon. And while you're doing that, remember, you always have reasons to doubt. And beliefs as it turned out.